man, I haven't seen you guys since last year. Ah, <laughs> oh, I know. I had to get one in. I had to get one in. Thank you. Uh, as you know, in uh, 1637, philosopher Rene Descartes penned the freshman-level quote of all freshman-level quotes. Let's see if you remember it. I think, therefore, I am. That's it. Now, most, most of us have not read any Descartes, uh, but we share something of his idea on what it means to be human. Primarily, we think of ourselves as thinking things. I've heard one philosopher describe it as it's almost like we're brains on a stick. Life is about filling our heads with the most accurate data to best navigate life. We've come to believe that knowledge is information or data or facts, content that can fit on a spreadsheet. Knowledge is the domain of science and mathematics. Consider most of our education system. It's the rote memorization of formulas, data, dates, rules, principles, information that can reduce, be reduced down to a multiple choice question. But that's a pretty limited definition of what knowledge is, isn't it? I mean, I could spend the next hour going through your Instagram feed, your Goodreads, your out-of-date LinkedIn profile. I could know your birth date, your alma mater, your hobbies, and the names of every single one of your exes. I could know the facts and the data points about your life but if we were to sit down together and I were to look you in the eye, there's a significant amount about you that I do not know. There is more to knowledge than data. I could spend hours watching master pianists on YouTube. I could recall the biographies of the best composers in human history. I could tell you the names and purposes of every component on a piano. This is all hypothetical, by the way, because I couldn't tell you any of that. But all of that information, if I were to sit down at this keyboard, would not produce anything resembling beautiful music. There is more to knowledge than just data and information. At 14, I spent weeks on a 112-page driving handbook memorizing the road signs and their purpose. I knew about yielding to pedestrians and coming to four-way stops. And on my 15th birthday, I aced a multiple-choice exam about that 112-page driving handbook and then immediately knocked the mirrors off my mom's SUV. Because there's a significant difference between acing a multiple-choice test and getting behind the wheel. There's more to knowledge than memorizing some rules. Knowledge is more than cells on a spreadsheet or information in our memory bank. Knowledge is time spent with someone. Discovering their intricacies and the why behind their stories. Knowledge is also the feeling of playing the right note. Your, feeling, your, your fingers moving across the keys, moving without conscious thought. Knowledge is also experience behind the wheel, habits and reactions honed by daily trips across town. 
For late modern Jesus followers like ourselves, this perspective of knowledge as data or knowledge as information has convinced many of us that we can think our way to God. If I just read the right book, listen to the right podcast, discover the best argument, belong to a thoughtful church, have the right conversation, I can know God in the way I want to. But the great danger of this information-only faith is that it does not engage the whole of the human person. You and I have minds, but we also have bodies, hearts, emotions, memories, stories, and experiences. There is more to us than just brains on a stick. And I long, as I think you do, for a faith that is real, interactive, and powerful, A faith that develops joy on the mountaintops and sustains me through the valleys. I want to know God. I want to actually know God, not as a vague abstraction or just in the Bible stories, but to know God through the reception of his spirit. It's with that aim to know God more that I want to set a road map for what's in front of us. For the next month or so, as we move towards Ash Wednesday and the Lenten season, we will continue to pray, come Holy Spirit. We spent all of September, October, and November on this same prayer, working from Genesis to Revelation, highlighting the stories of Scripture in which the Spirit takes center stage. The subtle difference between then and now is that we are moving from lecture to laboratory. Hear me say this. The highlight of our gathering is not my teaching or any teaching for that matter. The highlight of this gathering is when I finish and we pray, come Holy Spirit. The highlight is when we as the people of God linger and wait in God's presence at the table, in prayer, and in song. The highlight of the gathering is when we come to know God, not just in information, but in experience. So for today, I want to spend a short time setting up that response. So first I want to defend experiential knowledge. Not experiential knowledge against intellectual engagement, but alongside, and then I want to dig into John 20 and Jesus' invitation to receive the Spirit. Does that sound good? Okay, all two of you. Great. Well, the rest of you who are not excited, buckle up. Now, I want to get to that scene in John 20, but I want to start 72 hours prior in John 14 through 17. There, in this moment, Jesus is sharing a time with his closest friends before he will do the unimaginable. He's offering these parting words to his disciples before he turns the world upside down in an event called Easter. And at some point between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane, he begins to teach that the Holy Spirit will come in his place. And right in the middle of that teaching, in chapter 16, Jesus mentions something 
really difficult for us to understand. He says something to the effect of, I will be going away soon, but I am sending my spirit, and that will be so much better. So according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is a marked improvement over a direct face-to-face conversation with God in the flesh. Jesus claims that the Holy Spirit with us is better than Jesus with us. And what I find so interesting about this statement is that none of us buy it. Like there's not a single one of us in here that wouldn't trade all of our experiences with the Spirit for just a moment with Jesus in a coffee shop. Like, who wouldn't trade for just a few moments with Jesus and a couple of lattes? But on the last night before his execution, Jesus will be almost giddy about the promise that his disciples will be receiving the Spirit. And that's something we are willing to trade for just a few moments. Jesus will say this in chapter 14. I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus speaks of one from the Father, sent by Jesus, who will dwell in us communicating all manner of truth and comfort. The comforter will, be, will not be one seen, but will be experienced by those who follow Jesus. Now, whatever you want to call it, experience, encounter, emotion, sense, not only are these things valid, they are important. In other words, feelings are okay. And while that may seem like a no-brainer for some of us, I think there might be many who do not feel like we can experience God with our emotions. That there is a closed-off part of ourself. God can have my intellect, but I'm not sure about the rest of me. Maybe it's that we haven't been told that's okay, or that we've just been closed off from it. Oxford-based theologian Simon Ponsonby, he's British, writes this, I propose, I purposely, excuse me, I purposely emphasize the word experience and will seek to show from the scriptures the importance of experience. A non-experiential religion is suspect, for it fails to deal with the totality of our being. John 14 alone is chocked full of examples of experiential language. I will give you an advocate. The Spirit will live with you and you will know him. The Spirit will teach you and remind you of all that I've said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What are these claims if not encounters? experiences with God. So much of the modern evangelicalism is cautious 
of an experiential Christianity because we're afraid of a departure from scriptures. And there is some valid truth to that. But the reality is a non-experiential Christianity, a faith of disembodied ideas, theology just knocking around in our brain is a departure from the biblical text. The very safeguard of our faith, the biblical text, constantly speaks of a faith that is felt. God strolls through the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Enoch walks and talks with God until one day their conversation is finished. Jacob wrestles with an angel until he receives a blessing. Moses encounters God in a bush in the wilderness and as a light on a mountain. And as a kid, Samuel is invited into divine conversation. This is what Dallas Willard calls the golden thread of scripture. God's presence with his people from beginning to to end, it's all about God coming near to us. And knowledge is built on experiences with God. It's a theme that starts on page one and is reprised on every page that follows. Now, by no means am I advocating an experience only Christianity. That is not the faith of Jesus, but neither is an intellect only Christianity. So hear me say this very clearly. We should read books. We should look at data, studies, and information. We should be a well-informed community. We should think deeply about our faith. But we should also be opening up our minds and our hearts to the possibility of the Spirit meeting us. Authentic Christianity will engage with and evoke a response from our heart, our soul, our body, and our mind, the whole of our being engaged by the Spirit. It is not an either-or, but a both-and. May we be both a community of scholars and mystics, poets, artists, and thought leaders in the community. We can be a community of both-and. And I think that is the community Jesus imagines when he talks to his disciples in John 20. Let's pick up in John 20. In this passage, Jesus has just conquered death, but that information has not quite made it to his disciples. So while they are hiding out from the Jewish authorities, Jesus shows up. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, The first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Side note, imagine you're hanging out, doors locked, and Jesus just appears and he's like, peace. Like that is not what I would feel in that moment. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Notice how close and intimate this interaction is. This is a friend who has a gnarly scar showing his friend the aftermath. It's almost like Jesus' MTV is scarred. He's like, take a look at this one. Let me tell you the story about it. That's a dated reference, I know. It's fine. This is the God who draws close and gives his followers an experience they won't soon forget. 
For when challenged that men do not come back to life, Peter can say, no, 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 I've seen the scars. I've been in a room with him. I've hugged his neck. Experiences matter, and here's why. Verse 21, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The objective of experiential knowledge, moments in God's presence, is not a community of warm fuzzies. It's not a community in which we have this constant dopamine drip from worship. The purpose of experiential knowledge is to be a people marked by the knowledge of God, sent into his world to declare that all things will be made new. The entirety of this passage hinges on, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. The work of the Spirit is not for our entertainment. It is to renew the whole world. And as Jesus' job was to point to the Father, our job is to point to Jesus, to do the stuff that Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit. The good news is we are not left to our own devices to try and follow Jesus in our own might. He has given us one called the Holy Spirit, a guide, advocate, counselor, helper, energizer, coach to carry on the mission of Jesus. This is what Craig Keener writes about this phenomenon. The Spirit, above all else, carries on Jesus' mission and mediates his presence. The personal functions of the Spirit are also the functions of Jesus in the rest of the book. And the sensitive reader cannot miss the connection. For those of us who learn to receive and rely on the Spirit, we begin to experience the life spoken of in the Scriptures. And the fruit of that reliance, the fruit of that receiving of the Spirit is threefold. First, new intimacy. Second, new holiness. And third, new possibilities. I want to offer a quick word on each. First, new intimacy. Life with the Spirit, receiving the Spirit of God, results in a new intimacy with the triune God. This is a greater sense of God's love, joy, peace, and kindness towards us. His posture towards us is infinite delight. And don't let any other lie steal that away from you. Friendship with the Holy Spirit is learning to tune into his love for us. It is experienced in planning and spontaneous encounters where you are reminded of God's love towards you. It first results in new intimacy. Second, new holiness. This is also called sanctification. It is the ongoing process of heart and character renovations. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches of in Galatians 5. For those who trust and learn to walk with the Spirit, the very character of Christ himself will be produced in you. It's not that you will act like you care, but that you will actually be a person of love. Not that you will act happy or satisfied, but that you will actually be a person of joy. Not that you will act cool or undisturbed in moments of chaos, but that we can actually be people of peace. 
If we refuse to open ourselves up to the possibility of the Spirit interacting with our emotions, I think there is a limit on the power that the Spirit can do in our lives. If you're unwilling to open up about your grief, there's a block and there's an unwillingness to let the Spirit deal with some of those deeper things. Through this renovation process, we grow in holiness through the Holy Spirit. I know, it's shocking. I think when we talk about greater experiences with the Holy Spirit, um, you think, or I think, there might be flags and tambourines next week. Um, and it, you know, for all that that goes, like, that is not where we're going. Our interest is in a deeper connection with God's life-giving spirit and letting the character of Jesus bubble up within us. The name for the third person of the Trinity is Holy Spirit. He is the one who develops holiness in us. Third, new possibilities. Faith, courage, miracles, creativity, innovation... The Spirit opens up a startling range of new possibilities. I think the Scriptures testify to the Spirit prompting us to stand against societal injustices and to pray for the sick. To believe for miracles and to start new businesses. It is a both-and approach. Both the prophets and the apostles inspired by the same Spirit. It's us learning to trust the Spirit to act in both incredibly ordinary and incredibly extraordinary ways. Here's another wild claim for you from John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. This is a wild claim from Jesus. Scholars have debated whether this is a quantity or a quality thing. Will we do bigger things than Jesus? Or is it because there's more of us, we do a quantity thing? There's like numbers are working in our favor. I really don't know for certain. But I'm confident that Jesus didn't mean we will do less than what he did. I'm confident that it is an invitation to try. And trust him to help us do the Jesus stuff. To forgive as you have been forgiven. To preach the gospel. To liberate the captives. To see the blind receive sight. To see the lame walk. The deaf hear. The dead come alive. The poor having good news preached to them. It is to do the Jesus stuff. My dream for Midtown is that as we grow in our reception of God's Spirit, that we will be opened to a whole new range of what is possible in the power of God. That we as a people are liberated from our materialism, freed to give freely of our stuff. That we are endowed with ideas, creativity to start new businesses and new nonprofits. Institutions that will inject wisdom and hope into this city. I long for a day when those who are tormented by the demons of their past will find peace in God through our prayers. I long for a day in which people are wheeled from Truman Medical Center because they've heard these people pray and God sometimes shows up. 
I long for a day in which we are marked by the power of the Spirit. I want to do the Jesus stuff. And that starts by being able to tune in to the whispers of the Spirit. Remember, it is Jesus who says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because another will be with you. This is the Spirit. This dream is not rooted in our giftedness, but in God's goodness. Because I think God has a fondness for the ungifted and unqualified. He has a fondness for the down and outers. He has a fondness for those who are just saying, here I am. And this is all facilitated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go on to verse 22. And with that, Jesus breathed on them, reminiscent of the creation account and the ruach of God, the spirit of God. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That last line in verse 23 is fairly confusing, but just know Those who are receiving the Spirit are entrusted with a significant amount of heaven's authority. Throughout the New Testament, there are a variety of metaphors that stretch human language in an attempt to convey the experience of encountering the Spirit of God. In relationships, we kind of cling to metaphors to describe our experiences, like... um, You know, when Cassie and I were dating, she actually held my hand first. Surprise, surprise. And what did I feel? Butterflies in my stomach. There were not literally insects inside me, but the results of this beginning relationship started something in me that I could only describe as butterflies in my stomach. And similarly, the biblical text is rooted in these metaphors of humanity coming in contact with the Spirit of God. Those metaphors include being led by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Spirit, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, born of the Spirit, worshipped in the Spirit. But the three most common are filled, baptized, and received. In all reality, I think they're speaking of the same experience, the same moment, but they speak of it from a different angle each time. So a quick word on each. The first metaphor is baptized in the Spirit. And this depicts the immersion of a garment dyed with a color. Imagine a plain white strip of cloth or linen material being dumped into a deep blue or a shocking red or a vivid purple. It emerges no longer the same as it went in. It's saturated with something else. To be baptized in the Spirit is to be immersed in the divine presence of God, to be drenched in the Spirit. The second metaphor is filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with spirits. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul is referring here to wild first century drinking parties 
where one would be under the influence of strong liquor. The analogy here is be clear, to be under the influence of the Spirit. I don't think this is entirely a call for prohibition, as much as it is a call to let your whole being be influenced, filled to overflowing with the Spirit of God. We don't get filled just a little bit. We jump into the ocean of the Spirit. It's to be filled to overflowing with God's divine presence. And finally, receive the Spirit. It is to receive the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit is a sign of the Father's overflowing love that testifies to our new identity. Paul again in Romans 8. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought you into adoption to sonship. Three metaphors for the same experience with God's spirit. To receive the spirit is to be consumed, influenced, inundated, saturated, and complete with God's presence and power. And whatever you want to call it, this experience, most of the debate around it comes around the question of when. When does one receive? When is one filled? When is one baptized? That's the question around doctrinal moments or doctrinal statements. And those of a general Baptist persuasion will suggest that their position is one that when one declares that Jesus is Lord, the Spirit resides in them. And so their answer to the question is it happens sometime around conversion. Those of a charismatic or Pentecostal persuasion will suggest that we receive a deposit of the Spirit at conversion. And then there's some secondary experience later on that endows us with the fullness of the Spirit. And maybe this is a cop-out, but I think both are missing the point. I tend to agree with Pentecostal scholar Craig Keener, who suggests that this win is an argument of semantics. He writes, we seek not in a single experience, but a continuing relationship. Daily encountering our master in the power of his Holy Spirit, living out of the power already imparted to us when we became followers of Jesus Christ, I think the win of your first filling is less important than the win of your next filling. It's less important when it began and when are you going to return to the Spirit of God again and say, I am open to whatever you're going to do in my midst. Whatever you want to do in my life, I am open. Whether you had a powerful experience with God the moment you said yes to Jesus, or you had a moment at an altar or a camp years later, the more important question is, how are you interacting with the Spirit today? How will you respond to the invitation to receive the Spirit today? How will you allow yourself to be baptized in the Spirit today? How will you be filled under the influence of the Spirit today? The when question only matters if that was the last time you experienced the Spirit's power. For those who follow the way of Jesus in the power of the Spirit, we long for a lifetime of fillings, a lifetime 
of receiving. Worship team, would you join me? As I mentioned at the beginning, um, we're gearing up for the highlight of the gathering. And I think when I speak of experiential knowledge or baptism or filling, being filled with the Spirit, there might again be wild ideas about the nature of our gatherings now, that I'm interested in all of us jumping or everybody's eyes being filled with tears or like just general chaos. And I can assure you that is not my desire whatsoever. Um, I'm not interested in hype. Like, I'm not interested. Christina and the band are not going to play. There's going to be no hype. There are no lights. There's no fog. There is nothing that can confuse you about whether that was God's spirit or just an emotion Alex played upon. Listen, I grew up in an environment in which I had some of the most powerful experiences of my life in youth group and camps. But there was a, a significant amount of untangling was was that just like the sad story that was told to me right before was that just the lights was that just the band hitting that right note at the right time and I've discovered that regardless of the trappings around it God really encountered me in those moments that I was really filled with the spirit of God to the point of overflowing but I had to do a lot of untangling in the midst of that and so our desire today is not to influence anyone's emotions it's just simply to say i i think if we're open to it god's gonna show up so our invitation today is simply will you respond to the spirit will you be open to what the spirit is doing in this room and in your life before we respond i want to just offer a couple of quick thoughts just ways to respond. First, this all starts with a posture of humility. Surrender your agenda, your expectations of what God is supposed to do. Again, we're not here for a dopamine hit in worship. We're here to hear from the Spirit of God. We long for a quiet confidence in the person of God, not for a force or a good vibe. So let's lay down our agenda and commit to a posture of humility. Second, it starts with repentance. Confess and renounce your sin. Search your heart for idols, unfaithfulness, and resentment, and let the Spirit talk to you about where you've fallen short. I want to be clear, that voice will be gentle and encouraging. It will not be a tyrant. If there is a tyrant bouncing around in your head, it is not the voice of the Spirit. Third, trust. With a humble faith, ask that God will pour out his spirit upon you. I find that having a posture of open hands in front of me is just helpful. It aligns my hands, my body, my heart, and my soul all come together just as I simply focus on what's in front of me. We trust that he will give his spirit to you. And then finally, test. Think, talk process compare what you've experienced to the scriptures and to the life of jesus remember the spirit is leading us into the mission of jesus so the spirit will not say something to you that you cannot imagine jesus doing if he were you so the spirit is not leading you to tell your boss off 
The Spirit might be leading you to have an honest conversation. The Spirit is not telling you that you are worthless, but there might be a bad habit or destructive tendency that you need to address. The Spirit might be inviting you to pray for someone in your microchurch or friends you know in this community. The Spirit is not inviting you to grab this microphone. I promise you. The Spirit might be giving you a new idea and inviting you to risk something for the sake of the kingdom. So in humility, repentance, trust, and testing, let's stand and prepare to receive from the Spirit. So if you would, stand with me. The invitation is start wherever you are, but I would suggest a humble posture, hands out in front. And we're just going to take two minutes, maybe a little less, of just quiet before the Lord, letting the Spirit speak to us. And then we're going to return to one of our worship songs, not because we need the hype or we need the emotions, but because there's something about singing a prayer that really helps us. Pray, come Holy Spirit. sanctity of this moment that you would begin to speak to us in the power of your spirit that we would, we would be a people marked immersed in your Holy Spirit that we would be people filled to overflowing with the power of your spirit that we would receive the gift of your Holy Spirit leading to us to do things only you can imagine. Father, as we lift our voice in song, may this be our prayer, that we long for moments with you. For those of us who have been closed off, letting you touch a painful part of ourselves, I pray that you would help us have the courage to trust you again. For those of us who haven't opened this conversation and dialogue with you again, may this be an opening to a new conversation. For those of us who have 
failed to see where you are at work, would you bring to mind all the places and little moments you've been at work in our lives? May we be a people marked by your presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to know you more. It's in Christ's name we pray. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.